afternoon, everybody. And now and da, if there are any Welsh speakers in the room, one in a hundred people in the UK should be a Welsh speaker. Any Welsh speakers? Come on. Okay, good. Well, I'm very glad to hear it. Okay, right. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. I have two hours today, and I think I'm going to talk for about an hour and a half of them. I don't have a special meditation-themed midsection, but if you enjoyed the morning session which I sat in on, then uh, perhaps we can do one of those when we're, when we're halfway through. Um, I am, uh, as Niall was saying, the Pro Vice Chancellor Teaching Learning in this August University in North Wales. For those of you who don't know where Bangor is, um, that's sort of my day job. Um, but for the rest of the time, I run an emotion and brain injury lab, uh, and I'm part of the North Wales uh, Brain Injury Service that is a sort of chronic service uh, in, in a rural area for people that have uh, strokes and, um, uh, and acquired brain injury of, of various descriptions. Um, I teach neuroanatomy. Uh, we run an annual Visceral Mind Summer School. That's a week-long residential anatomy course uh, in which I teach people not only how to recognize brain areas, but also how to draw them. And in my spare time, I paint them. That's my painting, one of my paintings. And as it turns out, that's my 50th birthday cake. If you want to see how obsessed I am with, um, with, with brains. Uh, and as we said earlier, um, I'm part of this uh, uh, international movement called Neuropsychoanalysis, which is about either the relationship between neuroscience and, the, and psychoanalysis or, or the psychotherapies in general, uh, which is what, what brings me to that connection. Various people you might know, maybe Manas Tsakiris and Katerina Fotopoulou, who are both in London here. That's Mark Solms over there with our book and our Japanese translator and a much younger version of me. Uh, this is the famous Jörg Panksepp, who will be talking now, the late, unfortunately, Jörg Panksepp, who I'll be talking about a bit later. So that's to sort of just frame who I am uh, and to give you all an idea to, to see whether the audio works well. Can you hear me reasonably well? I'm sometimes accused of speaking too quickly, so put your hand up and tell me to go more slowly if that happens. But I'm, as I get older, I get slightly better at regulating my speed. It's a slow journey. Okay, right, so, so where to begin? Um, I, I'm going to talk quite a lot about emotions here, especially because I think um, emotions are at the heart of mental life. And I'm going to go on a small rant about why my discipline failed to recognize that for much of the last century. Uh, emotions are enormously powerful, sometimes overwhelming, uh, uh, for our patients, and there's a reasonable case to be made for the, the claim that every DSM-5 disorder is really a disorder of one or other class of basic emotion systems which are running amok. Um, that's a, uh, far too complex an argument for, for today, but, but nevertheless a very interesting one. So, uh, and it brings us to a little quote that we like to use in our field, it's actually Mark Solms' quote, uh, that our patients suffer mainly from feelings. Uh, no one goes along to their psychotherapist and says, I have these hidden memories that I hadn't thought about for a while and I want to understand where they come from. They say, I'm in pain. Please, can you help me to, um, to, to have a, a less of that, uh, of that distress? So the, the, the issue then, if the issue is psychic pain, then the, the question is what solution uh, there is to this problem and uh, managing our feelings seems to be at the heart of that. Uh, and there's a case to be made, and, and I'll be making it today, uh, that emotion regulation is the process that allows us to, uh, to, to manage our feelings and um, help us to better contain these otherwise potentially very distressing, uh, 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 I suppose, feelings and, uh, and affective states. So that's the, um, that's the overall argument. I'm going to break today's talk into two halves. So firstly, I'll talk about basic emotions for roughly three quarters of an hour, shall we say. Um, uh, their role in, in mental health, uh, the biological basis of those, potentially some relationships to things like recreational drug use and um, organic psychiatry. Uh, and um, at the end of that, uh, we'll be able to have a brief break if you want one. 
um, uh, for, for, for five minutes uh, and then we'll switch to the second part of it uh, which is about the regulation of emotion uh, and what role that might play in psychotherapy in particular I'll talk about a lot of uh, our publications here which have been about how to identify uh, the psychological processes that underpin successful mental health and their potential role in the, um, in, in the psychotherapeutic process together with their biological basis. Uh, I'll also at the very end talk about some psychological processes that I think are not important for psychotherapy which I think is a neglected corner of the field but nevertheless very important. So that's my overall plan, two 45 minute slots Leave us half an hour for questions or so. Is that, uh, are we all on board for the, for the journey? Okay, so what can we say about our patients suffering from feelings? The claim I'm going to make today, um, which I think, for which I think there's 70 years uh, worth of uh, neuroscience uh, uh, evidence, uh, is that um, emotions are ancient, very old, phylogenetically, and indeed, if you want to do the ontogenetically human development thing, they've been around for a, a much longer time than often we as a society want to admit. That maps, by the way, onto a whole animal minds question, which could be a different talk, but not today's one. Uh, they're very ancient. They are also overwhelmingly powerful. Uh, we see it, for example, in small children who completely lack the ability to manage their feelings. And becoming an adult is in many ways the developmental achievement of being able to learn to manage our feelings, uh, which varies enormously, as even the first speaker said today, depending on uh, your personal biology and also the circumstances in which you're, uh, you, you're raised. Lots of variation here um, and if they're poorly managed they can be powerfully overwhelming. That's the, uh, that's the claim that I want to make today. I think it's a claim that most people in this room would be quite comfortable with. That's why it all, it's all the more shocking to speak as someone with a, a first degree in psychology that psychology spent most of the last century trying to not only ignore it but also almost actively work against uh, that fundamental and, and very important proposition. So as any of you with a knowledge of the, the history of psychology will know, the middle of the last century is dominated uh, by behaviorism, learning theory, uh, the idea that uh, we can't study anything except the overt manifestations, the behavioral manifestations of, uh, of things. My simple summary of that half a century uh, worth of field is that there are two kinds of behaviorists. Uh, the one kind of which I can sort of understand as an experimentalist and the other kind of which I, I feel a bit repulsed by. Um, sorry, to, you'll see why in a moment. Uh, the, the one I can understand is the founder of the field, J.B. Watson, um, who makes what I think is a pragmatic decision about feelings uh, or indeed about the mind, which is to say these are really hard. You know, uh, I think the, the, the first speaker this morning said, you know, there's, nothing, there's no data less reliable than this is the way I feel about something. Um, so they were uncomfortable with that as a source of data. That's not that Watson doesn't think there is a mind. He just thinks it's hard to do. So for about 50 years in the middle of the last century, um, you know, core of psychology tries to study only overt behavior and not to use mentalizing words about, uh, uh, about the idea that there might be a mind. And I can live with that. It ends or starts to end in the 1960s. Um, uh, with the development of cognitive psychology and then cognitive neuropsychology and cognitive neuroscience, uh, which has sort of uh, made mental states more amenable to experimental psychology. But the middle of the last century is a, is a, is a desert for, the, for those reasons. But as I said earlier, I can live with Watson. I can't live with Skinner. Skinner <laughs> holds the position that in principle there is no such thing as mind. That is, all of us here in the room today are zombies or automata, that mind is, a, is an, an epiphenomenon. It's a, 
a, a position which I think has profound moral implications because so much of the way that we choose to behave towards others, so much of our legal system is founded on the idea that not causing distress to others is a, a good a general good in the world and distress in others is a bad thing. But imagine if others can't feel distress because they're just zombies. So here is, I think, one of the most appalling quotes of the 20th century. The emotions are excellent examples of the fictional causes to which we commonly attribute behavior. So imagine the fact that all of your feelings today are entirely fictional. It has uh, profound implications. For, for those of you who, who are familiar with Skinner's work, he wrote a book called Beyond Freedom and Dignity, uh, which is about how we can design a society in which we'll train people for different jobs, and because, not because of their innate talents, but because we can train everybody from scratch. We, we are all blank slates. So I'm, um, I have ambiguous feelings. Sorry for getting a bit worked up about it, but my, my field... <laughs> My, my field, ignoring the thing that I think is most important about the mind for most of the, the, its first century of existence seems to me like a bit of a, like a, bit of a gap. Okay, uh, just to show you that this problem hasn't entirely gone away, here's a paper that we published a couple of years ago, which was a survey um, of various books, but this is just the, the, the encyclopedic version of it, uh, which shows how often the word cognition, that is the clever bits of the mind, versus emotion, which is for me the feelings, old part of the mind I mentioned, uh, and cognition gets 38% uh, of page references in, um, in Ramachandran's book, um, and, and feelings get two. That gives you a feel for how we stand. And if you speak to, if you have a look down the sort of faculty membership of, uh, of any of Britain's or the world's great psychology departments, you'll see that cognition researchers heavily outnumber emotion researchers, even though I think for most members of the public, emotion is the thing they probably care about most. And indeed, it's certainly the reason that people go and try to get treatment for, uh, for, for, for psychological distress. Okay, so I think I've, uh, hopefully I've made my case for why emotions are important and why some people in my field chose not to think that they were important, which I think was a, a tragedy that we're slowly overcoming. Okay, so then let's do a bit more neuroscience here. If I was giving this talk in the 1970s or, or, or 1980s, not only would we all be a bit younger, um, but <laughs> I, would, I would probably have said different things uh, about the biological basis of feelings. There was a lot of research back then about hemispheric asymmetry and how the right hemisphere is really very important for, for the, as the biological basis of, uh, of emotions. And I think I can safely say now that that fact, those findings are both absolutely true and fundamentally wrong. And, and, and if you give me 60 seconds, I'll try to explain to you why. So it is absolutely true and still true that patients, for example, with right hemisphere lesions have difficulty telling happy from sad from angry faces or happy from sad versus angry voice expressions, the thing we call prosody, the, the, the music of speech. They are definitely bad at those things and the right hemisphere seems to be very important uh, for that ability. But I, I, the great movement of the last half century uh, of my field is the recognition that those abilities, like telling a happy from a sad face, is not in itself a motivational state. It's a clever cognitive skill. That is, you know, your face looking happy or sad or angry, um, it looks pretty similar. You know, it's more or less the same architecture. It's just some small contours and the way that your eyebrows um, or, or, or the corners of your mouth are, are, are moving. It's a, a very complex skill and because it's complicated, we need the new clever bits of the mind, well, indeed the brain, in order to achieve that state. But that's not to say that recognizing happy or sad or angry faces is at the heart 
of happiness, sadness, or anger. Those are very, very different things. Uh, and um, I think just to show you a paper we published ooh, three years ago now, uh, this is uh, with a, a Spanish-speaking colleague of mine. As it turns out, I'm at that sort of age uh, which I, in which I get to be the senior and therefore the last author and never the first author of any of the papers. If it wasn't for PhD students, I wouldn't be doing any science at, at my age. Um, but th this is a paper designed to show um, that feelings, proper visceral feelings, are very important and that the ability to tell facial expressions apart is, is not important. This is a group of patients uh, who have so-called complicated grief. Um, that is, uh, most people after uh, the death of a loved one go through a, a period in which they feel very sad and they have normal mourning. And after, should we say, two years, uh, then they're still sad about it, but they've, they're not, no longer obsessed, no longer caught up in, in the profound feelings of, uh, of grief. For a small fraction of patients, I think the literature is usually about 10 or 15%. They have so-called complicated grief. That is, they can't mourn properly. They are still as distressed two years later as they were uh, you know, in the initial period afterwards. And so these are uh, two groups of patients, one of whom, all of whom had lost loved ones, one half of whom have had normal mourning, and the other half of whom don't uh, have complicated grief. They're still in mourning, even though several years have passed. And this is a sort of magnitude of symptoms uh, uh, diagram. And what you can see you don't need the statistics to show you, is that the sort of magnitude of the symptoms self-reported by the complicated grief group are about double those of the other group. Both sides have lost a loved one, matched for age and education and all those sorts of things, but complicated grief just makes you feel incredibly sad, which I think is no surprise to, um, uh, you know, to, to, to anybody in this room. But that's measuring the things that I really want to care about, feelings, the visceral gut experiences of, uh, of what motivates us. We also wanted to see about, say, the facial recognition stuff. And I'd love to show you a graph, but the paper wouldn't let us print a graph because it would have been incredibly dull. It says there were no differences between groups in the total number of emotional faces, uh, faces recognized on, on, on various tasks or the discrete emotions. The two groups are entirely identical when it comes to this co cognitive skill of telling happy versus sad faces, but profoundly different when it comes to the, the visceral experience of these emotions. So, you know, I'm, you know, I'm a academic, I'm an intellectual, so I like to want to be interested in the clever bits of the mind, but I'm not really interested in the clever stuff. I want to care about the stuff that we have, even when we aren't clever, that's at the basis of strong, profound, often overwhelming feelings. And it turns out that these are based not around the new clever cerebral cortex of the human brain, but around some very ancient subcortical systems that have been around for a very long time, certainly across all mammal species, and arguably much earlier in the vertebrate series. So, how did we know that? Well, I said we've known for a long time. This is James Olds' work in the middle of the last century, 1950 or so, that he started publishing this self-stimulation work. Uh, it's work on rats in which they put a, an electrode that has a very tiny electrical pulse in it in different parts of the brain. And in some subcortical areas, particular areas like the nucleus accumbens, they generate profound feelings of, um, I was going to call it desire, you probably can't say that a rat has desire, but it looks like desire, I promise you that, um, in which the animals have a choice between pushing the lever to self-stimulate or doing other things. And here's my list uh, of things which these, which these rats choose to ignore instead of pressing the lever. Firstly, food. Secondly, water. Thirdly, in male rats, um, it's, it's a, they choose not 
to uh, spend time with uh, female rats, even when they're, when they're sexually receptive. Uh, in female rats, they choose not to spend time with their pups, uh, even though, of course, that's what you should normally want to do. Oh, and by the way, they'll cross uh, grids with electric foot shock in order to receive the, uh, the, the lever. This is the profoundly, enormously reinforcing activities. Uh, in fact, in a famous paper in 1972, uh, in work that you'd never get uh, approval for now, um, they had direct stimulation of the brain in some human patients in order to do this. Uh, the rats, by the way, push the bar about 2,000 times an hour uh, and will do so for 24 hours. Uh, they have to be unhooked from the machine in order to stop them from, from, uh, from starving to death or, or, or from dehydrating. Uh, the human equivalent uh, in the, the, the paper, the famous patient is B19, uh, would repeatedly uh, push the bar in preference for, for almost anything else and um, just said, you know, whenever they were uncoupling him, we said, just give me an extra five minutes, come on, please, I really have to get the last few pushes in. Profoundly overwhelming, uh, almost, uh, uh, um, you know, sexual desire levels of, uh, of reward from these brain areas. There's something about them that's powerfully rewarding, powerfully reinforcing for, uh, for human beings. So we've known about this stuff since the middle of the last century. How, you know, in 1953, Skinner can say, there's no such thing as feelings, seems to me as if he hasn't been reading enough neuroscience. We also know, if I can just make more of a case for why the old brain is important for feelings and the new clever bit isn't, um, that brain lesions to the new clever cortical parts on the outside of the brain make uh, more or less no difference to the experience of basic, basic emotions. Here's a lot of our work over the last ooh, 15 or so, getting on for 20 years, which demonstrates that the magnitude of experience in patients who have cortical brain lesions is more or less unchanged relative to controls. Our patients have a little more difficulty managing their feelings, but that's for the second half of the talk. The actual experience of feelings is not mediated by, uh, by, by these cortical, new, clever brain, um, brain regions. We did some work on erogenous zones um, a few years ago. It's the only time I've got a double page spread in the sun. Um, not my proudest moment, but uh, there we go. Um, which, um, a reference back to a 1990 story involving a member of the royal family, for those of you who were around um, during that revelation. Um, we, uh, we did a lot of work on, on, on it over the years, but the, the one fact I want to extract uh, from, the, from the findings are not our work, but actually the work of, of two neurosurgeons, Penfield and Rasmussen, again in the middle of the last century. Uh, these are neurosurgeons taking brain tumors out. And as you know in neurosurgery, before you take something out, it's really helpful to stimulate it electrically to see whether you need it or not. So they're spending a lot of time stimulating the, um, the, 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 the brain, especially the outside part of the brain. Uh, our last speaker um, spoke about the homunculus, that is a representation of the body in the cerebral cortex. Um, for for uh, reasons of wanting to avoid uh, uh, sexism, I prefer to call it a firminculus, which I think is the correct Latin rendering uh, of, of homunculus, because it could be a, a female body as much as a male. It's in the new outside clever bit of the, uh, of the brain here. And the question is, what happens when it's stimulated? So if this is the only map in the brain of the, uh, of the body, then stimulating it might lead, for example, to all sorts of erogenous feelings. Um, and um, as it turns out, uh, Penfield and Rasmussen sometimes have to remove tumors that are in the body part area of the homunculus that represent the genitals. So he's stimulating these areas, and here's the famous quote from him. Curiously enough, after 400, doing this in 400 patients, we have never produced erotic sensation in, but by any form of electrical stimulation, including brain areas 
that map onto the genitals. So the patients felt tingling sensation or scratching sensation in the genitals. But, but no one was ever saying, ooh, uh, Dr. Penfield, please, can you turn the volume up on that? I'm really, I'm re I'm really loving that. Um, and that's because the new clever bits of the brain are not for feelings. They're for all sorts of clever things, and I'm, I'm very fond of cleverness in the, in the new part of the brain, but they're not for those basic, powerful, visceral feelings. Those are to be found in much more ancient brain areas, like the ones I talked about for, for self-stimulation earlier. Here's Tony Damasio's imaging work, 20 years old now, but, but still one of the great papers in the field, um, in which he gets people not to look at happy and sad faces in the scanner, but instead um, to experience internal states that are linked to particular emotions. So he has people who practice first remembering important life experiences, like thinking sadness. And then they, they practice beforehand thinking, what will make me sad? Oh, I remember the time they dumped me. That was really terrible. I was in love with them. And then it turned out there was problems of this and that. And, and now, you know, I, they've given me the boot and I feel very sad about that. I'll, I'll be alone for the rest of my life. Then having practiced a bit and found people who can do this, then put them in the scanner and let them experience those feelings. Uh, in fact, in, in the method section of the paper, it makes it clear that the, the, in the sadness condition, that these people were so good at re-evoking their personal experiences that they were able to cry in many cases during those sadness experiences. And they compare that with a baseline, so you can get a nice subtraction methodology. Here's sadness, anger, happiness, and fear. Do I have a zoom in? Here we go. We'll do sadness, partly because it's probably the most powerful feeling for human beings and all other mammals. There are three findings I want you to notice uh, from these data. The first of them is that the, the area of most powerful activation is subcortical here, involving the upper brain stem, a bit of cerebellum which we can ignore, uh, upper brain stem moving forward here through the hypothalamus towards uh, this area which is called the anterior cingulate. So very powerful activation of these ancient brain areas that have been around for, um, for, for, for hundreds actually of, uh, of millions of years. Secondly, Notice that these findings are entirely symmetrical. There's as much activation in the left as it is on the right because although the cerebral cortex is asymmetrical, the new clever bits of the brain have a left-right dimension, that, that asymmetry is just not true in, in the ancient brain. They, they map left onto right as much as, uh, as, much as each other. Uh, and then finally, we can have a look here at the cerebral cortex. And what you see is either no change from the control, the, the neutral condition, or in some cases over here, areas of deactivation. That is, these, I was going to call them patients, they're, um, uh, they're, they're volunteers, um, are not, they're not thinking clever thoughts here. They're thinking simple, profound, repetitive thoughts, in this case about sadness, about how the person you love the most is now no longer in your life and you'll never have them back and it's just all too much for you and that's why you cry, you know. And, you know, presumably in the anger condition, it's about that person who wronged you and got in your way and ruined your life. And now, if you could just have them in the room, you'd strangle them. And in the fear condition, you know, how you manage to get people to cycle through these in, in an imaging uh, setting, I don't know, but uh, Damasio found some good ones. So further evidence then that the new clever bits of the brain are not at the heart of, uh, of strong experiences. And we've also known from animal work for, for the last, again, half century or, or more, uh, that areas, for example, like the hypothalamus, have profound uh, uh, roles to play in basic drive states like hunger and, uh, and, and thirst. You can lesion bits uh, of the hypothalamus, like the ventral medial hypothalamus, and get animals that become, you know, these are two rats exposed to as much food as they want, uh, and the one rat remains nice and trim and just eats till they're full, and the other rat 
eats itself to obesity, uh, and you can, uh, you can lesion the opposite side of the hypothalamus and get anorexia in those, uh, in, in those rats. So drive is really at the heart of, uh, of these ancient brain areas. They're powerfully motivating for, for human beings. They're not clever, um, but that doesn't mean they're not important. In fact, it probably means they're more important than we otherwise might have recognized. So how many are there? Um, I won't. It's an hour-long undergraduate lecture to discuss how many basic emotions there are. The short answer is no one knows, but I can give you some boundary conditions. There's no one in my world who thinks that there are fewer than four, and there's no one, I think, who thinks that there are more than seven. Uh, but in between, there's a bit of a debate, so um, uh, we, we won't cycle through all of them. But happiness, anger, sadness, and fear is not a bad shortlist, uh, which I offer to you with a caveat that the word happiness is the slipperiest word uh, in my field's vocabulary. Very hard to define. I'd be uncomfortable using it. And I'll talk about two very important different kinds of happiness in, in, in a few minutes' time. Uh, this is Jacques Panksepp, the late, great Jacques Panksepp, who, who has seven on his, uh, on his list. No reason for us to, to spend too much time on them, but there's plenty of work out there if you want to follow it, in, in either in the academic literature or indeed in the, um, even in some popular literature. You can selectively lose one of these emotions. Uh, here is uh, an example from uh, Andy Calder, my colleague when I was a PhD student in Cambridge who unfortunately died in a, a status epilepticus attack a couple of years ago, which was a tragedy. They work on selective loss of disgust after the lesion to the insula. Um, apologies if you just had lunch, because I'm going to show you a slightly disgusting picture, um, but it does show selective loss of disgust. This is from Ralph Adolf's work. Um, so here's Adolf's description of this, uh, of this patient. Sorry for the picture, but it just makes it more evocative. Patient B was unable to recognize disgust in any of the stimuli we used, including the descriptions of actions or spontaneous labeling of dynamic facial expressions. When told a, a story of a person vomiting, his descriptions of how the person would feel included hungry and delighted. <laughs> when observing the experimenter act out an apparent vomiting of unpalatable food, accompanied by retching sounds, so the experimenter goes, <coughs> B's description was that delicious food was being enjoyed, <laughs> which I don't think was the experience of anybody here when I, uh, when I demonstrated that to you. So you can selectively lose these. It looks as if we are running simultaneously multiple emotion systems in the brain. They are not completely independent. There are some areas, particularly the, the, older, the further back you go in evolutionary history, in which they become common. But, but in, probably in mammals, they spread out to be relatively independent anatomically, and also their neurochemistries are independent. So, so I'd like to spend a couple of minutes on, uh, on, on, on that issue. Um, here's a, a nice little slide about evolutionary conservation. So this is a picture from, from uh, Yark and Doug Watt's work on um, the, the anatomy of the sadness system, color-coded. You don't have to worry about the labels, uh, but a, the system runs from the upper brainstem, PAGs for periaqueductal gray, through um, various areas of the thalamus and hypothalamus towards this area over here in green, which is the anterior cingulate. And here is that equivalent system in the guinea pig. Okay, I hope we, we agree. Not many things we have in common with them, but it runs there from the PAG through the dorsomedial thalamus and through the hypothalamus towards the anterior cingulate. This system is effectively conserved across all mammal species. You can see what makes us different from guinea pigs, of course. We have this huge folded cerebral cortex, which makes us infinitely cleverer than, than your average guinea pig. They just have a little bit of cerebral cortex and they've got very big olfactory bulbs at the front of it. And of course, you know, their brainstem goes out horizontally because they're quadrupeds 
and ours vertically because we're bipeds. But apart from that, when it comes to sadness, guinea pigs are feeling sadness just like, like you and I are. In fact, of course, we have a much greater capacity to manage our sadness than guinea pigs do. They're, they're, they're children much more, um, much more vulnerable. Okay, so I think that puts our science in a very interesting position, uh, which I'm going to spend a couple of minutes talking about. I've got a picture of Newton here um, because the great joy of science when it's succeeding is when it pulls together things from completely different areas and shows how a single explanation, can, a single sort of model, can explain really diverse things. And everyone learns how marvelous Newton is because the same force that allows apples to drop from trees is the force that allows the moon to orbit the Earth. I mean, who'd have thought it? But Newton has a universal law of gravitation that shows that those two very different things are actually the same thing, just viewed through different perspectives. So I think in, in emotion neuroscience, we're in a, an interesting situation in which we can pull together at least three things that are in different chapters of the textbook and say they are actually just the same thing viewed through a different lens in a, a similarly Newtonian way. And the first of them are basic emotion systems. I've just spent half an hour or so talking to you about them, you know, the things that underpin our feelings. Uh, secondly, the issue of recreational drug use. So, uh, as I'll show you in a few minutes, the reason people take recreational drugs is in order to modify basic emotion systems. You know, sort of makes sense. Uh, it's not that they're specially designed, it's just we tried all the drugs in the world, and whenever one modifies your feelings, then people go, I'll have a bit more of that. So that seems to be at the heart of, uh, of recreational drug use. Uh, and indeed, organic psychiatry. It turns out that the drugs which uh, uh, your psychiatrist gives you in order to help to manage various psychiatric disorders are indeed modifiers of basic emotion systems. That's the, that's the overall principle that underpins three very different fields um, and, and somehow brings them together. My great hope, um, because I'm looking forward to the end of the DSM system uh, and its replacement with a better textbook to classify psychiatry, uh, is that we'll be able to design a classification system for psychiatry that's based around basic emotion systems rather than the current rather arbitrary system. But that's, again, a, a rant for another day. Um, I put the word consciousness down there because um, there's a reasonable case to be made for the fact that consciousness arises in order for us to be able to feel basic emotion systems. That is, that we need to know <laughs> when things are working or not working in our lives in order, to, in, in order to drive behavior. So there's a very interesting philosophical question here about what the origins and, and, and role of consciousness might be. But again, that's not one for us here. Okay, so I'd like to try as a sort of test case to take one basic emotion system and run through it and show you how, whoops, where was my last slide? Show you how once we've talked about the feeling, then we can talk about the drugs then we can talk about the psychiatry and see how it's, it's really the same thing, given that you can sort of turn up and down the knobs of or, or the, the volume of this, uh, of this basic emotion system. So to get there, I'm not going to talk about happiness anymore. I'm going to divide happiness up into two very different categories based on an important system uh, uh, pointed out first, although also by Yark, but, but, but I can't bearage. He talks about a distinction between wanting versus liking. Um, two words that I think you might have sort of thought were synonyms or maybe not, and in five minutes' time you'll know why, that you, hopefully you'll no longer think of them as synonyms, um, and you'll see why I think one of them is much better in our life than the other one. I'm a big fan of wanting, by the way. Um, so, wanting is the feeling you get before you find the thing you want, 
It's when you want to go out and seek and explore the world in order to, to, to better investigate it. The classic uh, animal version is, uh, you know, sort of sniffing around for things in, in, in the world. If you're an olfactory animal or going for a walk or whatever it is that, um, that motivates you out in the world, you, you often don't even know what it is that you want. Um, you just have the sort of um, uh, desire to explore. Um, Yark, when he talks about, um, uh, uh, about the system, the so-called seeking system, calls it a goad without a goal. That is, it is a motivation system that drives you out into the world, allows you to burn energy in order to get the thing that you want, but doesn't specify what you want. It's like the petrol in your car. You know, you put petrol in your car in order that your car has energy, but the petrol station doesn't say whether you're going to go to the beach or to the library with that car. You know, it's, it's your life history that will determine what you choose to use that energy for. So it's a multi-purpose system designed to give uh, human beings energy and it's energy expending. You're burning your own stuff in order to want to get it in the world and it makes you feel like you've got energy. Uh, in fact, subjectively, we think that the, the word that best describes uh, what it is is enthusiasm. That sort of feeling you've got in which you, you want to make things happen. Uh, and of course, uh, remember I talked about dials here, you could turn it up chemically, you could turn it down chemically. What, what would more, what would less enthusiasm look like for, for, for human beings. So this is the thing we use before we've got the thing that we want. It's the wanting part, the, 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 the search for the, the holy grail that, you, that you're prepared to burn energy for. There's a second state that's also pleasurable. You argue you might call it a form of happiness, but it's very different. Uh, and, and Kent Bridge, Bridge calls it liking. And that's what happens when you've got the thing that you want. You've, um, you've achieved um, uh, they, they call it post-consumatory in my world, um, but they don't mean consummation only in the sexual sense of the word. So you've, you've got the thing you want, and now you're just kind of enjoying it. Um, and it is not an energy-burning system. It's an energy-conserving system, which is also pleasurable, but fundamentally different in its subjective experience. It's not a sense of enthusiasm. No one, you know, lying on the couch with a big bowl of, um, of ice cream is feeling you know, like they want to go and do more stuff. You know, they're feeling like they're quite enjoying resting. And, and similarly, for the, um, you know, uh, for the, for the post-coital sense. I'm, I'm giving a talk in a couple of weeks' time in Brussels to our International Society on, uh, on, on sex. Um, and um, uh, the first question I want to ask, to ask is, why is sex good? Which is an interesting question, actually, biochemically. What, what, and, and, but, but why is it good at different times? You know, and the chemistry of this system is the chemistry of things pre-orgasm. You know, you've got enthusiasm. Uh, pre, uh, and, and the chemistry of this stage is the chemistry post-orgasm, in which it's also lovely, but enthusiasm is not a word you would use to describe it. It's a much more about attachment, about bonding, about relaxation and, uh, and rest. So that, that's why I don't like happiness. That's why at least two very different kinds of subjective experience map onto two different kinds of chemistry. So let's talk more about wanting, which is the one I like more, by the way, because it's better for your health to be doing more wanting and a bit less liking. Um, let's talk about the chemistry of, uh, of, of, of oh, you have to get some, some of the time where you wouldn't be motivated. But there we go. So pleasure in wanting and, and, and seeking. Yark calls it his seeking system. He used to, over the years, call it a curiosity, interest, expectancy system. It's, as I said earlier, the sort of energy-burning uh, system. It arises in the upper brainstem in an area that you don't need to know the anatomy of, called the ventral tegmentum, the area of tie, um, and it heads towards a number of areas of the, not only the cortex, 
but particularly subcortical areas like the accumbens. Those are the brain areas that David Olds was targeting in the 1950s that was getting the rats to want to push those, um, the, the, those bars. And it has a particular chemical chemistry in mind, uh, which is dopamine. Uh, you've no doubt heard of dopamine. It comes in two different varieties though. Uh, there's so-called D1 dopamine, which starts next door to the ventral tegmentum, at, but maps onto different brain areas. And that's the one that goes awry, of course, in, in Parkinson's disease. This is D2 dopamine, so-called mesocortical, mesolimbic dopamine is the, the phrase people use to describe it. Um, and it projects to a number of reward-based um, areas. So that's what we think is that underpins the chemistry of enthusiasm, the chemistry of wanting and seeking and getting out into the, um, into the world. So let's think a bit more about it. What could you do if you had more of it? What would it look like to have more wanting? Well, I, I, I'm not recommending this because I'm not a supporter of recreational drug use, but cocaine and the amphetamines will give you more wanting <laughs> for a couple of hours until you burn your receptor sites out, which is why I don't recommend it. It, it, it increases dopamine levels uh, synaptically in two similar but, but, but different ways and will give you a couple of hours worth of extra enthusiasm. Um, uh, it was described in the Western literature for the first time actually by Freud uh, in, in 1884. Um, uh, he, by the way, he's Sigmund Freud. Remember I said these things are a goad without a goal. So, uh, and Freud has 27 volumes of his collected works to be writing. So he says, isn't it marvelous, this, uh, this cocaine? It gives me exhilaration and euphoria, an increase in self-control. It gives me the greater capacity for work. He says, I, I take this cocaine stuff and I can write my papers till two o'clock in the morning. Isn't it marvelous? You know, so of course these days, you know, people use these recreational drugs for, for other reasons. But, but I hope you can see that um, what you're doing here by increasing the amount of this dopamine system is increasing your enthusiasm, if that doesn't sound a little bit like the title of a, uh, of a, a comedy program, I suppose. Um, you know, it gives you for a couple of hours this extra stuff. As I say, I don't recommend it because you just burn it out and then you end up not, not being able to have these natural systems rebounded. It's really an artificial pharmacological way of hijacking what is a traditional system. So obviously, I would much rather we designed our lives in such a way that we can generate enthusiasm through normal routes, through working on things for which we feel enthusiastic. But I think this is a sort of existence proof of what happens when you turn the volume up. People get extra enthusiastic about stuff. So if you can turn it up, you can turn it down, surely. Uh, there are not very many examples of it, but we were in the 100th anniversary of the most important example of it, uh, which is at the end of the First World War, that terrible uh, outbreak of uh, what is technically called uh, encephalitis lethargica and was incorrectly called the Spanish flu or the sleepy sickness. I don't know if you remember, you certainly may, hands up everyone who knows Sachs's Awakenings book. Okay, so most people in the room, uh, uh, well done. Um, but, um, so what happens? It, it turns out, by the way, if it doesn't kill you, uh, the sleeping sickness, and it killed, I think, as many people as died in the First World War, some terrible number like that. Uh, it damages some areas of the upper brainstem, particularly the ventral tegmentum, which we are, are, are so interested in here today. And uh, it basically lowers those dopamine levels artificially. And what you can see is that those patients described by Sachs in the early 1970s, based on work he'd done in the 1960s, um, is that they'd been in uh, what they called suspended animation since the 1920s. They were conscious, by the way, because although there's damage to the brainstem, it's not to the consciousness producing part of the, uh, of the midbrain. Um, so they remain conscious, but if you remember the, 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 the film and the book, 
they're sort of sitting in their chairs with open eyes, um, but not able to do anything. They lack initiative, they in, indeed in lack enthusiasm. And um, when uh, 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 Sachs, of course, what he does is to give them L-Dopa, the drug that we use against Parkinson's, uh, which raises your dopamine levels, and that lifted them out of this uh, dopamine-reduced state. Uh, and they described not only being able to move again, that is, they not only had um, bodily um, uh, enthusiasm, but they described how beforehand their minds had been stuck, that it was like walking through treacle, that they weren't able to even move their minds. Because we, of course, all in this room can all think, what did we have for breakfast? What did we do yesterday? Um, but they, they seemed unable even to, to, to manage that, that remarkable process. So this is, what it, this is the chemistry of this feeling and, and its consequences. And here's how you can turn it up in recreational drug use. And here's how you can shut it off when you have a particular class of, um, of, of disorder. And it turns out, uh, there's much more I could say about this, but I'll, I'll be brief, um, that modifying uh, dopamine levels is at the heart of one class of um, uh, psychiatry. Uh, that is the so-called neuroleptics or antipsychotics or major tranquilizers, whichever word you'd prefer, um, which it turns out lowers levels of D2 uh, dopamine and has for interesting reasons that are beyond the scope of what I'm going to say today, an important role to play in uh, trying, because it's not always successful, in trying to reduce delusional beliefs uh, and hallucinations in, uh, in, in psychosis. So much more we could say about this, but it, it, but it looks uh, as if uh, the psychiatric attempt to modify psychosis here is by lowering levels of, of, of that drug. It turns out that the patients are not very enthusiastic about taking it because it is literally curbing their enthusiasm. It's reducing their ability to, to, to act in the world. Um, but it does seem to have some, I say that with some caveats, um, capacity to, um, to, to generate um, reductions in psychosis. Okay, so that's, that's my first pitch, which is about wanting. You know, that is, here's this thing that makes us go out into the world and burn energy. You can turn it up in one class of recreational drug use, or you can reduce it in, in another uh, class of neurological disorder. And indeed, it seems important for, for a bit of psychiatry. You can have a similar, a similar story uh, for, for the liking piece. There's, liking is, is complicated in lots of other ways. Um, but it looks like, for example, it's underpinned by multiple pharmacologies, of which the most famous uh, of which are the opiates. Um, so our endogenous opiate system seems to produce internal classes of liking um, and um, also seems to underpin, of course, the attachment system and the reason that we care for others in the world. Here's Candace Pert, the woman, now the late Candace Pert, everyone in my talk today is dead now, um, who in 73 uh, should have got the Nobel Prize for her work on, uh, on endogenous opiates. Um, and she had been hospitalized, uh, she just had a, a horse riding accident, and she was on diamorphine, and here's a description of that. In addition to relieve, uh, she, she was, by the way, a new mother. In addition to relieving all pain, it also seemed to completely obliterate any anxiety or discomfort I had as a result of being confined to a hospital bed and separated from my husband and young child. So that is, firstly, a description of the chemistry underpinning the system and the, the way that um, the opiates and other pharmacologies of, um, of attachment seem to operate, but also, of course, begins to describe uh, the recreational drug use element of it all. So by shooting up on heroin, the, um, the user is artificially you know, overwhelming this attachment system. Uh, and of course, it feels very good for a while, and then you need more of the drug, and that's why I'm not recommending it. But you can see that increasing the level of this um, 
liking system has profoundly different effects to what we see in, in the first system, in, in, in the wanting system. So, you know, people are taking cocaine in order to go, amphetamines in order to go out dancing. No one takes heroin and then goes out dancing. It's, it's a passive state. You know, you, you, you take the drug and now you feel freed of anxiety. You have no feelings of separation and sadness and loss and you can just lie on the sofa like train spotting or whatever and, um, you know, and experience that, the, the bliss, the pleasure uh, of not having feelings of separation and sadness and, um, and distress. And I showed you, of course, the chemistry of that, um, of that earlier. Um, there are real issues here in, uh, in organic psychiatry about how to use pharmacologies to treat these systems. So um, it was, 100 years ago, quite common uh, to use opiates in the treatment of major depression or, or melancholia in, in psychiatry, but of course it has great problems of addiction. Um, so these days other approaches to the problem, most notably serotonin and the famous SSRIs, are um, trying to do the same thing. Alas, they lack the great power of the opiates, but they don't have the same addictive properties. So, okay, so that's my... Oh, and here's, a, here's the architecture of uh, the guinea pig separation distress system and what we think the architecture is in the human system leading forward to the nucleus accumbens. Here's a meta-analysis, admittedly mirror image from the last way around of seeing the brain, also showing that the role of the anterior cingulate in, um, in major depression. There's some work by Helen Mayberg um, on deep brain stimulation to these brain areas, which is also another way into that system. You know, just basically um, showing us that there are different forms of basic emotion system and that they map onto a range of different sort of brain phenomena, I suppose. Um, it also opens, for those of you interested in uh, uh, the relationship with the psychotherapies, an interesting question about the, uh, what Freud would have called the metapsychology, the, the idea of what is the mind in, um, in, 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 uh, in uh, psychological science. Um, Freud was always interested in what neurobiology would bring, but he always admitted that the drives were the furthest part from the surface of the mind, the deepest, hardest parts to reach. Uh, and was enthusiastic that we'd learn a bit more. So here's a, a Freud quote. Um, Biology is truly a land of unlimited possibilities. We may expect it to give us the most surprising information, and we cannot guess what answers it will return in a few dozen years to the questions we have put it. So we now are indeed a few dozen years after Freud's original speculation. Freud has a very different number for how many basic drives there are to the one that I've just given you. He has two or maybe three, depending on your, on your view. Uh, we now, I think, have another sort of way in. Okay, so that's my halfway mark, ladies and gentlemen. And we're about halfway. So shall I keep going or do you want a five minute break? Keep going, okay. <laughs> Three breaths or whatever it is that the last speaker said. Okay, so I've, I've now done basic emotions and um, I, I hope you've seen um, that I, I'm making a case, a slightly ranty case at times for why they're really important for mental health they're at the heart of psychiatric disorders. They're at the heart of happiness in, in, in many respects. And the better we understand the biology of these systems, the better we are placed to be able to know what the causes of things are. The question then becomes, how do you treat it? You know, and I've talked about one form of treatment, which of course are the, um, the pharmacotherapies, the, the organic psychiatry, I suppose you might call it, which um, have many uh, arguments in favor of efficacy and many counter arguments uh, against efficacy, um, the, maybe the most strong of which 
um, is the limited duration of efficacy. That is, uh, they seem to work only while you take the drugs, uh, which is why so many of those drug studies don't want long-term follow-up on their patients when they're not on the drug anymore because they go back to where they were. Um, whereas it's a much better case for the psychotherapies that you have a short-term intervention with the patient and that the uh, advantages continue after treatment has finished. In fact, there's even some evidence that they seem to linearly increase a bit with time. So you're no longer treating the patient, but the patient is using the things that they learned in psychotherapy in more and more other domains of their life and, and getting progressively better. So I'm not interested in the pharmacotherapy stuff, but I am interested in the psychotherapy stuff. And um, I, I had been interested in that literature, but couldn't think of a very good way in um, because it, it was following, that literature was following a, a a method that I wasn't comfortable with, which is neuroimaging. I'd like to talk then about the regulation of emotion. It is actually less for me to say on this, so I shouldn't, I'm not going to use up all of my time. I do want to give a chance for questions. So I'm going to talk about why it might be important for psychotherapy. I won't spend too much time on the psychotherapy part, uh, but I will talk about its biological basis based on our work, um, which is really, as I said earlier, I, I was unhappy with the work done in imaging. They tend to be before-after investigations, uh, with people trying to treat, for example, simple phobias, um, and too many bits of the brain light up. Uh, and also in my world, neuroimaging uh, runs the risk of identifying areas that are involved in a process, but perhaps aren't essential for that process. So uh, it turns out that the work we do, which is human brain lesion work, uh, you really know, you can see uh, whether somebody needs this process or, or, or not, and you can identify exactly which brain areas are involved. So I'll show you a few examples of the studies that we've done uh, in that uh, domain. And I'll finish by talking about a psychological process that we think is not important for psychotherapy. It's quite interesting. The example is memory. You'd think it might be important. Uh, we have a little case to make that maybe, um, maybe it's not as important as people had previously thought. Okay, so we think that if, if our patients suffer mainly from feelings, the question is how does that process work? And, and we think that it's through this thing called emotion regulation which is a gradually achieved skill, a developmental achievement, uh, which happens during um, you know, early childhood and continues on well into adulthood. Uh, all those arguments about how many years does it take for the brain to develop and why maybe 18 isn't the magical number uh, for when we've uh, completed our journey. Uh, emotion regulation seems to be at the heart of that. It also seems to be at the heart of what makes us uh, unique is not the right phrase, but I mean, um, particularly unusual as a species is that we seem able to, to manage our feelings in a number of interesting ways. That's not to say that we're using those skills necessarily very wisely, but it, it does seem to make us, uh, you know, the dominant species on this planet at the moment. So I'm going to talk about which processes in the brain areas, uh, but the, the overall argument for this, which you can see from the first half of my talk, is that these are newer brain areas. These are developmentally acquired skills. They're maintained through working relationships with, with others that are important in our lives. So uh, it's called emotion regulation, massively um, under-investigated. So here's a graph Googling the, the use of the term emotion regulation in the literature, uh, which goes during the 1990s from uh, 1980s. Um, no, this is 1990 actually, from something approaching zero to something approaching exponential. That is, it's now become a thing uh, in, in, in the world. Uh, it's uh, uh, based uh, as an academic field for the work of James Gross, who we've been working with for the last couple of years. Um, and he has an interesting model that has different kinds 
uh, of uh, emotion regulation process that I might be able to talk about later, but I won't spend too much time on them. So here's this, a lot of this work, by the way, is with my uh, previous uh, PhD student, Christian Salas, who's now back running neuropsychology in Chile. He's, he's marvelous. He comes to the, came to the UK on a Chilean government scholarship. He's now the most qualified neuropsychologist in Chile in research and clinical terms, and he gets to found the discipline in his country. It's, uh, I visited him a few months ago. It's wonderful to, to be in his situation. Um, so here's some very important work. Uh, this stuff is uh, uh, on a phenomenon, emotion, uh, a phenomenon called response modulation. And that is, how can you stop yourself from expressing uh, emotions in two directions, either through um, uh, amplification of the emotion or, uh, or, or suppression? So when might you need to hide an emotion? When might you need to amplify an emotion and a, a neutral condition? So we've got people seeing pictures of things that are emotionally um, important and we invite them either to amplify them or to, um, or to suppress them and we have video on them so we can capture uh, the magnitude of, of facial expressions in, in those cases. Why, by the way, might you need amplification or, um, or, or, or suppression? Well, certainly, I think you need suppression uh, because of the great problem of schadenfreude, uh, which is that human beings get um, pleasure when other people that are our competitors in the world, like our friends, do well. Um, and there's plenty of evidence that people have schadenfreude as a phenomenon, but you need to not express it near your friends because they get upset. You're supposed to be their friend. Um, and a lot of people, it's, it's at least one cause of problem in, uh, in, in patients who have brain injury in that they, they, they're more likely to express schadenfreude, which is a perfectly legitimate feeling to have. You just mustn't show your friends that you're busy having it. Uh, and the other issue is amplification. So when might it be advantageous in order to amplify a feeling? I think it's particularly important socially and indeed for yourself uh, when you, you're trying to circumvent uh, a negative emotional state. So you might have got off the tube and you're feeling grumpy and you're going into work and you could just go into work and say, oh, I'm having a bad day, I'm gonna have a moan. Or you could say, I'll pick myself up here and make a joke and make light of it and it'll all be okay. And, if, and that's a very effective technique for not only making your life better, because you'll make the lives of others around you better, but others will like you more when you can imagine a very virtuous cycle in which amplifying positive emotions is good for you and, in, and, and good for your friends. So which brain areas might uh, perhaps underpin uh, the process? Well, firstly, uh, we investigated a whole group of, uh, of patients, primarily those who have uh, right frontal lesions, to see what happened. I won't show you the data, but it worked. That is, uh, people who have brain injury are less able to either suppress or amplify their feelings um, and uh, more importantly the uh, magnitude of the inability uh, correlates with particular classes of, of brain injury. There's a lot of talk um, about the frontal lobes in this regard and they're very important for executive function. We did indeed find um, right frontal activation uh, in these patients but actually and very interestingly the, the core of uh, what made a difference was not in the frontal lobe itself, but in this area over here called the insula, which is just behind the frontal lobe and is a much more ancient brain structure. And we know that it's particularly important um, for the bringing together of internal viscerally generated states together with external perceptions. So it's a sort of mediator between, there I say, at the inner and the outer world. Uh, it's poorly understood. The, the, the insula, but somehow it seems to be very important for this, uh, the, this psychological process which, which underpins uh, response uh, modulation, the ability to, to drive up and down 
emotional states. So that's our best anatomical finding. I think we have a similar best psychological finding for a different class of, of emotional experience. So I've just showed you this thing called response modulation. So that is driving emotions up or down artificially. Um, the most studied phenomenon in the whole uh, emotion regulation literature uh, is a phenomenon called reappraisal. Uh, and reappraisal is basically an ability to take a, um, an unpleasant state and find something positive about it. Um, it's a key skill in psychotherapy, or indeed it's a key predictor of a range of uh, psychiatric disorders, because imagine a situation in which something bad had happened to you and you were able to say, well, that's unfortunate, but here's good news, you know, so I've just been dumped. It's, um, you know, someone has told me that they don't want to spend any more time with me and that's making me feel rather sad. You could just sink into a cycle of depressive thought about that because heaven knows there's no fun being dumped. Or you could say, well, they might have dumped me, but they had a few flaws, didn't they? So maybe I might have dodged a bullet. Or, you know, sure, I've, they've dumped me, but I could find someone better. You know, those are, those are positive reappraisals of an otherwise negative state. And you can see why if you, can't, if, you, if you can do that, you can drag yourself out from feelings of, say, sadness in this particular case. And how if you can't do that, you end up ruminating and cycling over the same difficult dark thoughts. So much of psychotherapy in, in, in regards to reappraisal is about helping people to have a more positive outlook now, on life. There's a whole positive psychology branch of, of, of the psychotherapies now, which is all about reframing and, uh, and indeed reappraisal. So uh, we used again these IAP pictures. So, um, you know, this is one of them, obviously a very nasty car crash. Uh, and uh, of course, you're all entitled and you can do it internally if you want to reframe that picture. There's much you could say about it doesn't look good, does it? Um, but the task is think aloud about the positive side of the situation. Try to be quick uh, uh, for us. So there are positives. Anyone have a nice positive out there for me? Well, this gentleman at the front thinks the insurance for the new car is going to be a, a positive. That's not the most common response from our, our client group. Let's see if somebody else can, but it is a positive, I suppose. Who, yes, I think that the most common thing is at least the emergency services are there and they might be able to do something. Or, you know, maybe, well, yeah, you know, it, 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 they may have had their seatbelt on and, and an airbag. So although they've had to be come out through the windscreen, that's only because the door's damaged and, you know, find some, some good things. There are other, um, you know, as you can imagine, the IAPS pictures that we use, it's a sort of standard international methodology, all nasty things. Um, there we go. Is that part of the same, <laughs> part of the same argument? So, you know, it's, so what we have um, are a group of control participants. We know how well they're able to reappraise. The question is which brain areas seem to be important for this process. Um, and the answer uh, looks as if it is the um, left frontal lobe, not the right frontal lobe. Probably the left frontal lobe because it's more linguistically involved, dare I say it. Um, and what we have is a patient, uh, a number of patients, but our star patient just couldn't reappraise. No matter how many pictures she looked at, she always would tell us the dark things that had happened in, in relation to them and seemed unable to find a more positive reframing. We also got a big enough sample from the study that we were able to do a bit of a sort of factor analysis, a regression, to be able to establish what was underpinning the process. 
um, are the two variables that seem very powerful for us. The first of them is inhibition. So the patients who couldn't inhibit were worse at the task. And secondly, verbal fluency, that is the patients who had greater verbal fluency were better at the task, unsurprisingly. So you might imagine if you were trying to think about reappraisal like a sort of process psychologist, you know, how does it all work? So firstly, I have a bad feeling about something, you know, I don't know, because I've been dumped. And the first thing I need to do is somehow inhibit, repress, control that feeling. Now, repression is never going to work indefinitely, but you could imagine holding that feeling at bay for a little while until you can put a sticking plaster over it. And what is the sticking plaster? It's a little linguistic tool in which you think, um, you know, something positive about it. So you, you take the bad feeling, you hold it at bay for a moment, you think of a positive thought, which is the sticking plaster over the thing that's negative, and then you don't have to inhibit it anymore because the sticking plaster is doing the work. When the thought comes to mind that you've been dumped, you now can automatically think, oh, is somebody better? Or but they were an idiot anyway, you know, whatever it is that makes you be able to, to retain that thought. So it looks as if, just to summarize those two, we have two very different brain areas, both of them in the executive frontal parts of the brain that are involved in managing these feelings in, uh, in different ways. I'd also like to spend a couple of minutes on our star patient in this regard who, who, um, who was in psychotherapy uh, for a while. He was a, a, an academic by profession, so he was really good at coming up with uh, subjective accounts of what it felt like to be him um, uh, and um, often very good phrases. And sticky sadness is the phrase which he used that we've been shamelessly borrowing for several years now because um, it, uh, it, it describes it so well. He describes how so he has, he has another left frontal lesion patient, so he has this inability to reappraise, and he describes how it stops him from being able to, to think properly. So he says, having difficulty walking, it's one of the things that depresses him since his stroke, um, having difficulty walking is something that saddens me. But then I have this experience that, well, it's like it's okay. It, I know it's okay to feel sad, but this is just not feeling sad. This is like a sticky sadness, which makes me feel sadder than I should. And really it's like when you step in the mud. So he says it's like treacle or mud or whatever. You put your foot in it and he just he can't get himself out of it. And he instead ends up in the cycle of rumination and over-consideration of the negative, which will be familiar to anyone who's worked with patients who have, um, for example, chronic depression. You know, they, they constantly recycle all of the things that have gone wrong in their life and, um, and why they'd be unable to try um, to, to fix things, even though there may be many aspects of their life in which they're reasonably successful. And, you know, one way in psychotherapeutically is to try to, to get them to focus more, uh, less on those negative automatic thoughts and more on things that are more positive and, and optimistic because everyone has done some good things in their life and everyone can try to do more good things in your life, even if it's just going out to, for a walk to the shops to buy the newspaper rather than sitting in your bedroom, you know, uh, ruminating on things. So, firstly, he describes this inability to change things himself. Then he says something which, uh, we haven't got it on the slide here, but, uh, but, but it's quite clear in the, in the paper, um, which is that, like many patients who have executive impairment, he can't change that process himself, but he can be externally regulated. And his external regulator is his wife. He says, when I'm in this state, my wife really helps. She can come along and change and remove the feeling of sticky sadness 
he uses an old analogy, he was, he's a retired academic. Uh, he says it's like a slide in a slide projector, for those of you who remember those old days in which we didn't use PowerPoint. He said it's, it's like she, she takes the old slide out and puts a different slide in. So she suggests to him something positive because there are good things that he's done in his life. He doesn't need to ruminate on the negative, but he's unable to do it, be presumably because he lacks you know, one of these key skills. He's unable to inhibit those negative emotions and then come up with a new sticking plaster of a thought which will protect him. Uh, but his wife does exactly that. She's able to say to him, don't be sad about walking. You know, the good news is, you know, look at what you're able to do. We were able to go out to the shops yesterday. You know, you, you were attending your brain injury session with people who had much worse disabilities than you. Um, you know, whatever other positive thought it might be that, um, that we need here. So I think, uh, firstly, an important lesson for us that it is possible using this technique to identify which brain areas underpin the regulation of emotions. Uh, and secondly, unsurprisingly, it's towards the anterior frontal executive parts of the brain, but it may be different for different classes of, uh, of emotion regulation. And there may be a left-right distinction here based at least around partly around the importance of, uh, of language versus visual imagery or some other dimension like that. Okay, so I want to end then uh, with uh, our example of memory because um, I spend my clinical time working with patients with brain injury and, and indeed it is hard to work um, uh, with those patients in order to improve their life in emotion regulatory terms. But it also occurred to me that many patients were making gains who had quite substantial brain injuries and you could ask the reverse question. Instead of which brain areas are important for psychotherapy, you could ask the question which brain areas are not important for psychotherapy. That would give you another sort of triangulation. And that's where, where our, our work in memory came from. So let's think about this um, uh, another way. Uh, we think that, um, well, the popular conception of memory is that they have one thing called memory. And if there's one thing that the last 50 years of, uh, of, of my field, neuroscience, have taught us, it's that we run maybe half a dozen classes of memory system all in parallel. So the famous one uh, is run indeed by the, the, our friend the hippocampus, which even came up in the first talk today, uh, and it runs this thing called episodic memory, which is those flash bulb uh, visual image recognitions of particular events in your life. So when you think back to breakfast, it'll come with a, this is the table I was sitting at, that's what the grapefruit looked like. Um, and because it's the one that's at the heart of our conscious experience, people think that that's what memory is. And it's one of the six things that memory is, but memory is many other things. I won't do the other four of them, but the one that we've been most interested in uh, is what we call emotion-based learning. Um, that is, how are we able to learn about feelings? Um, we have particular feelings about, shall we say, other people. You know which people you like, which people you don't like. That's not necessarily based on particular recollections of um, uh, life experiences. It might be because of an ability to remember what emotions you felt in relation to those other people. And we've published for 20 years now uh, work on emotion-based learning. It looks a little bit like, if I can hark back to the first talk that you heard this morning, it looks a little bit like that gut feeling, intuition, hunch sensation that we all have. Uh, uh, that is, we seem when we have a hunch about something that we are interrogating our emotional experiences in relation to classes of objects or ways of thinking about the world, which we can't describe in words, 
because they come from an immersion system, um, but are nevertheless, uh, the, you know, the, the, they're a different class of memory. Uh, we've known about it for, for 100 years. Uh, Edouard Claparad, 100 years ago, um, described the first patients. Have people heard about Claparad's experiment? No, okay, it's the, one of the least ethical experiments in my world. Um, <laughs> You, you try to apply for ethics approval at a university today for this one. So Claparet is a, a, a psychiatrist and a neurologist um, who, who saw on his ward rounds every day an amnesic patient, a woman, um, and she never recognized him from one day to the next. And so he decided to do um, a, a, an unethical experiment with her, which is to smuggle a pin into his hand and shake hands with her on the ward round um, so that she then impales herself on the hand, on, on, on the pin. Um, the question then, oh, it's not whether she felt pain, of course she did. Um, the, quest, the question is what happens the next day? So she's never recognized Claparade uh, on any previous days because she's profoundly amnesic. He reaches out um, and she doesn't want to shake his hand. Um, but she doesn't know why. So she says, uh, I think the, the quote in the original paper is something like, surely a lady has the right not to shake a gentleman's hand. <laughs> so she knows that there's something unpleasant about this guy because he stuck over the pin yesterday. Um, she has no episodic ability to remember the, the event, but he comes with a, with, with a negative experience. So um, uh, some colleagues of mine, Tony DiMazio and David Trinell, did some work in the 1990s along this line. We did some stuff that I think we'll sh I'll show you some of the data now. This is an emotion-based learning task with an amnesic patient um, in which our patient is performing at the same level as, um, as controls. Um, it was very interesting actually to watch the experience of testing him across the first couple of weeks. So the first day we were there, like any amnesic patient, they ask you every five minutes, who are you, why are you here? And then five minutes later, who are you, why are you here? Where have you come from? The same questions over and over again. Um, uh, we discovered uh, the more sessions of testing we did that uh, the less questioning he became about our motives. He never remembered us, of course, because we were coming back a week later to, to assess him but he would sort of smile and wave and feel very comfortable with us. So almost as if um, he was able to have the memories of our relationship, that is things that are based on emotional experiences with other people, sitting independently from conscious recollections of those, uh, of those events. So the question is, that what, as, let me rephrase it, almost as if there's a brain system for building relationships which has, does not need the episodic recall of individual life events. And in psychotherapy, this is called the transference. It's that relationship that you build up between the therapist and the, and the client, um, which helps them to work together on the therapeutic experience. And we know from 40 years worth of research in uh, psychotherapy outcomes that the number one predictor of uh, therapeutic success is the quality of the alliance. The therapeutic alliance is the, is the number one predictor. And here, we have an ability to have that system intact because it's based on a very different set of brain systems that have nothing to do with the hippocampus. That system intact in patients who have a, a, a brain injury. Uh, so I managed to convince another potential PhD student, this chap Paul Moore over here, who is a psychotherapist in Dublin, to do what I think is the most heroic psychotherapy experiment that I've ever seen done on one person. That is to go to the local brain injury service and find someone who has profound amnesia and do 72 consecutive sessions of psychotherapy with someone who can't remember what your name is. Okay, he has to go to the patient's uh, setting 
uh, and, um, uh, but, it, but it worked very effectively. Um, and you describe in this paper what happens across the sessions and many things I could say about it. I, I sort of want to say two, I suppose. The first of them is, remember, he doesn't remember, you know, the, the, the events of the previous week. He, he's seen for one hour a week. Um, the question is, can they work together therapeutically? So I'm going to give you one example, um, which I can't hide the Dublin thing because any of you who've been to Dublin will know. This is the Liffey, we call, which we call the Liffey Bridge incident in the, um, in, in, in the uh, paper here. Uh, it happens early in, in session five of the process, and it's about a difference of opinion between Paul, who's, who's the therapist, and, uh, and, and the client, and we watch its transformation across six weeks. By the way, you've got to be asking yourself, he's amnesic. Why are you able to work on a, on a story which is a week later? But we'll see a bit more about that now. So this, by the way, you now have more information than the patient. Well, you now know everything that the patient and the therapist have, which is that there's this bridge um, called the James Joyce Bridge, which is traffic-based in the middle and has got some walkie sections on the side. Okay. And this is what happens in session five. Here, do you know they call that pedestrian bridge that crosses the Liffey down there? Paul says the Hapney Bridge. No, 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 not the Hapney Bridge. It's a new pedestrian bridge. Okay. So Paul, the therapist, says, no, it's not a pedestrian bridge. Traffic can go across that bridge. No, 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 he says, it's not big enough for cars. So here's them cycling around that for the rest of the session uh, in which the patient refuses to accept that, that they might potentially be incorrect on, on this. So I'll give you a few of the lines here. It's just a little pedestrian. It's only about from here to the wall wide. I'm telling you, no cars can cross it. Paul says, I drove over that bridge. The patient says, you couldn't have. It's not big enough for a car or a bike. Then he said later, there's a little footbridge across there. There's no way a car could cross it. Now there's no way cars on that bridge. I tell you that much. There's no way you drove over it. Now it's just a little pedestrian. Um, and then my favorite last one is, come in next week and tell me you drove across it and I'll give you a thousand euros, 10,000 euros, a million euros. Then they both laugh because they're starting to develop quite a good working relationship. You couldn't, e you couldn't even get your car up on it. It's something Mr. Bean would try to cross over <laughs> in his car. It wouldn't work. So we're able to follow over multiple sessions. It keeps coming up every week. You know, he's, he remembers almost nothing else, but he's obsessed by this bridge. And I, I, instead of dragging you through it all, I'll show you what happens by session 11, six sessions later, and says, so the patient says, so I went down to look at that bridge. <laughs> Paul goes, you did, yeah? Yeah. Okay, I'm wrong. Ha, huh. but you can see over both sides of it though. Uh, um, you know, he says, uh, that's attached to the bigger bridge. So I think his argument, by the way, is that he wants to claim that bit of the bridge and there's an extra thing on the end. Yeah. Um, he said, so it stayed on your mind, given that this is an amnesic guy who has an hour of therapy a week. You know, I didn't realize that the footbridge was sort of part of the bridge itself. Paul says, it's very important to you, that bridge, and how the bridge is remembered and how it was brought in here, because I think it's probably one of the few things that we've engaged in that had a, we had a strong disagreement about. Uh, and uh, the patient says, uh-huh. Um, and then I like the next sentence because it shows that they're getting on so well, they finish each other's sentences. Uh, Paul says, that was very important for you to try and figure out when I had one opinion and, and he finishes the sentence by saying, and I had another. So we were able to demonstrate uh, an ability, not only for them to work together, but that the, the patient changes over time. You know, he takes initially a situation in which they have a disagreement. He then 
chews it over in his mind, even chooses to go and investigate it, presumably with a care worker, otherwise it might get lost, um, and then is able to, to come back and, uh, and, 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 and have a different opinion, a more consensual, a more two sides of the, uh, of the view opinion. So then I want to say one other thing about the psychotherapy before I finish, um, which is what happened near the end. Um, it caused huge challenges for Paul as a psychotherapist. He's seen you know, thousands of patients across his career, but no one's been doing 72 sessions with, um, uh, with, with an amnesic. Um, and of course, if you're a psychotherapist, the termination phase is very important. So you as the therapist and your client have agreed that therapy is going to end on date X. And usually towards the end, you have all these feelings of sadness and separation and loss. You're probably, you may never see this person again. This thing that you've invested so much energy in is no longer going to be part of your life. But learning to tolerate separation and sadness is a very important part of, of, of any therapeutic process, which is great for every patient in the world except for this one because he doesn't know that therapy is going to come to an end. So Paul as a therapist is firstly a very difficult uh, situation which the therapeutic community would call the counter-transference about how to deal with this, uh, with this phenomenon. Do you just kind of bust through it as if it's a normal session and then there's nothing anymore or does he sort of serve as a bridge? Uh, maybe it's a bad metaphor but you know uh, 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 you know, as, as some sort of storage for this memory to sort of leak it into the mind of the, uh, of the patient. And Paul spends a lot of the paper, you know, chewing over whether he did the correct things morally or, or, or not. But then a very interesting thing happens that we can track in, in the transcripts, which is although the patient is not aware that consciously that, um, uh, that the sessions are going to end, <coughs> metaphors about sadness and separation and loss start to increasingly appear in those terminal sessions. And I'm going to show you my favorite one, particularly because it's a nice Irish metaphor. So uh, I'll read it out to you in a minute, but I'll tell you about it first. So he describes how, as a child, he goes to Galway on the west coast of Ireland to the Cliffs of Moher, um, which, of course, as you can see, are very steep and is the first bit of Ireland you hit when you've come across the Atlantic. So huge winds come across the, uh, the Atlantic Ocean and go up that slope. So you have a sort of vertical wind, bizarrely enough. Then he describes how, as a child, he used, they used to go and visit there, and you have those little balls. You know, kiddies have light balls, not big heavy footballs. They have the little like, plastic ones, otherwise they break their feet. Um, and he describes what would happen in relation to those. Uh, and, well, I'll read it to you, and then we'll talk about it. So he says, the Cliffs of Moher. I used to kick a ball out there over the cliffs, and the ball would come straight back at you. I never lost the ball over those cliffs. So it's a situation in which you're trying to get, give something away, to lose something, but nevertheless that thing returns to you regardless. He says, everybody used to walk down the cliffs in that cottage and we were staying in. I, he says, I always wanted to run and jump off and get pushed back by the wind, but I was never allowed to, which I think is very good childcare advice actually, because <laughs> footballs do not... Uh, so he says, I was always, it always amazed me that you could kick a ball as hard as you could over the sea and it would just come floating back. So there are other examples, of course, about separation and sadness and loss in the end. And it's only an N of one, so I'm not drawing any giant conclusions. But I think there's a case to be made uh, for the fact that he was somehow aware that things were going to be ending. Of course, it was coming up. Paul would tell him in every session, 
you know, that we've only got X number of weeks to go, he of course forgets that that's going to happen, but he's only forgetting using his episodic memory system. His emotion-based memory system is being reminded in every one of the sessions that there's an opportunity for loss which is going to appear in the future, and this is one way of addressing that problem of loss, which is to say that maybe the loss is not permanent, maybe, it will, maybe the thing you've lost will come back, will come back to you. So, what can we say about, so to summarize, hour and a half worth of stuff. Um, I mean, my pitch has been in the first half that feelings are very important. They're very old, they're very powerful, sometimes they're overwhelming, and that overwhelmingness uh, might be at the foundation of, of, of what we call um, mental illness. Um, and then on top of this old system, we've got this, human beings have this newly bolted cleverness system, which is often used for things like language and, and memory, but I'm particularly interested in uh, because it's about helping us to manage our feelings, it's a developmental achievement for any small uh, child becoming an adult um, and uh, we think we've underpinned, we, we've identified the brain basis of it and in doing so it gives us an opportunity to um, see how psychotherapy might work. Which parts of the brain would you need in order to be a, a, a successful uh, patient in psychotherapy and indeed which parts of the brain you might not need even though that could be surprising. So I'll finish I think with a quote from Freud. Um, which is, uh, the deficiencies in our description would probably vanish if we were already in a position to replace the psychological terms by physiological or chemical ones. I think I agree with every word of Sigmund Freud there, except for one. Um, I have a real problem with the word, where is it? Replace. Because I'm not seeking in describing the biological basis, the anatomical basis of these mental phenomena. I'm not seeking to get rid of the mental, uh, in fact, we can only experience the mind from that subjective state. We need to use the language of subjectivity, the language of feelings, in order to be able to talk to our patients and, and to talk to each other. Uh, but of course, um, the deficiencies in our description become much less. The more we can see, not, we, we can see what it feels like as a human being to have a feeling, but also to see which, what the, the anatomy and the chemistry is that underpin those, uh, those things. So I like to think that this puts the psychotherapies in general and maybe all of mental science on a much more solid scientific foundation. It gives us a very important bridge here, by the way, between neurology and psychiatry, two fields that have traditionally been sitting a little bit apart, uh, and it gives us that, a real possibility of something remarkably strange, a neuroscience of psychotherapy, uh, because we know psychotherapy works, but it's not that easy to understand how it works, and um, I think this is the, the start of that very interesting journey. So with that in mind, and with 20 minutes left for questions, thank you for your attention, and it's been lovely to talk to you. Certain emotions. 
So how is it that you can point to an area of the brain and say, this is responsible for such? I was very struck out by the subcortical system you showed us, which looks very lovely and uh, very, very nice, very illustrative. But I'm, so that's my question. Sure. Really, how confident are you that this is true? Um, so, um, yes and no, and I'll tell you why both yes and no. Uh, so my no is, of course it's early days. You know, this is a very complex problem and we are relatively newly at it as a science. So um, I wouldn't seek to make um, too much of a claim about precision, um, but in my other half of the jigsaw, or seesaw or whatever, I'm, I'm going to say why we are at least reasonably sure that we're in the right ballpark. But, but I, I'm not claiming that I, we've identified all the brain areas, all the neurochemistry, uh, you know, it's, um, I think that's a separate issue. The reason why I think we can be reasonably confident about, uh, about it is the, firstly, the manipulability of the process, that is, if you've got something and you can turn it up and you can turn it down and you get more of the emotion and less of the emotion, that's, that, that's it's not just correlation, you know, it's genuine intervention and the pharmacological roots have that way in. You know, the, the second reason I think is um, the convergence of methods. So in cognitive neuroscience, the, the, the thing you're looking for is for when you get the same scientific finding no matter which tools you use. So I happen to use the human lesion study method, but there are people who use, you know, uh, functional imaging. Uh, and indeed, there are people who use animal models. You know, so if the evidence about, I don't know, sadness is working for, you know, newly hatched chicks and for rats and for humans, um, then, and you, you can turn it up and down in both those cases. I think it suggests that we are in the right ballpark. Now, have, just to go back to the first part where I, I think we may be wrong, have we got exactly the right words to describe those phenomena? I'm not sure. You know, I mean, I, I talked about seeking earlier, and I said that Yark across his lifetime went curiosity, interest, expectancy, seeking. Uh, there are other words, you know, uh, buried users wanting. You know, it's hard to find an English equivalent of whatever language the brain wants to speak to us in. And maybe that we need to make more progress with that. Maybe we don't have exactly the right number. I said my field disagrees sometimes between four and seven. You know, maybe, you know, is disgust really a basic emotion or not? We could, we, we could have an endless discussion about that. So my summary would be that I think... I, I feel very confident that we're on the right track. I am humble enough to argue that it, it's pretty early days in, in, in this regard. There's another thing I would say, which is that uh, you, you talked about the anatomy of these things. There are, I don't know, three, four, five brain areas for each of those systems you could identify, and often multiple chemistries. So. You know, I talked about the opiates for separation distress. I mentioned something about serotonin. I didn't say anything about oxytocin, but I could have done. I could have said stuff about prolactin, the breastfeeding hormone. Um, you know, 
and, and other chemistries are available. So, you know, how do each of the anatomical subsections, how do each of the different chemistries affect different aspects of the emotion? You know, it's a long century awaiting us here. There's no shortage of work for future PhD students. <laughs> so uh, that, that would be my answer. Sure. So uh, I talked about one side of the equation. That is patients who have lost episodic memory, they're amnesic, and they retain emotion-based learning. That is, they effectively have the gut feelings intact, even though they can't remember why they learned that thing. Um, and we've published plenty on that. There is a, the, the opposite case exists in the world. It's very well described. Um, and those are patients who have damage often to the ventromesial parts of the frontal lobes, most commonly after closed head injury. Um, and the, the, the classic case is so-called Phineas Gage. If anyone has heard of Phineas Gage, everyone knows about Gage. You know, but, but, but other, um, you know, many other patients are available. Of course, those patients have intact episodic memory. There's nothing wrong with the hippocampus. And the question is, what is their impairment? And it seems to be um, in judgment and decision-making. They are often impulsive. They have um, what's sometimes called myopia for the future. They, they invest a lot in immediate rewards and have difficulty judging whether doing something impulsive now will, will make bad things happen to you in the future. And they, they, they struggle a little also in the interpersonal world. So they are the sort of the, the, the two clear counterexamples. Um, I mean, my, my world contains other dissociations like that for other classes of memory system, like procedural memory or semantic memory. I could have, you know, it's, that's like an undergraduate um, summer, <laughs> you know, a semester on, on, on different classes of memory and their biological basis. But that, if that's the answer, those would be the two dissociative cases, you know, memory versus uh, ep episodic versus emotion-based. Seems to go either way. Oh, what happens? Oh, what does it feel like? I'm not sure if this is what you mean, but it might be, what does it feel like when you've got both of them working? Because, yeah, so we've got six memory systems running in parallel. What does it feel like to be a human being? The answer is a really important question about how much you rely on that. Um, and um, it's a very important issue in, in our world because some people, even some US presidents, like to believe that because they have gut feelings about things, <laughs> and limited expertise in that domain, that that allows them to know more than, than, than people who have, who, have greater, you know, who have greater expertise. It's a real problem. It's the Dunning-Kruger effect, if you know what that one is, which is that people with the least amount of knowledge have the greatest confidence in their ability to know things. And, you know, those... So, so how, much, how much you value your intuition uh, is really important in, in navigating your life. And there's not much research on it, 
but I think that the ability to, to know how much to use that skill is a very important predictor of, um, of, of lifetime success. And some of the thing that people used to call emotional intelligence is probably exactly that. It's the ability to know when you should trust those intuitions and when you, uh, and, and when you shouldn't. Can I get in trouble on the video by saying, impugning, actually everyone says things about Trump, so it's, <laughs> I'm safe. Okay, yes. an interesting question. Um, I mean, I do, let me go forward a couple of slides here. Where's my best basic emotion slide? Yeah, I, I, there's something I could have said when I was talking about basic emotions, um, which is, if there are four, and I'm one of the four people, not the seven people, um, if there are four, it's a tragedy of the human condition that unfortunately three of them are negative. You know, you've got happiness, sadness, anger, and fear, and, and you know, one gunning for us and, and three heading in the opposite direction. Um, I, I often say in evolutionary terms, that may well be because uh, we have, um, it's, it's evolutionarily safer to have one accelerator and three brakes. You know, you get into less trouble that way. Um, but it does mean, uh, a point sometimes made by sort of stoic philosophy, that bad things are going to happen. You know, it's just in the nature, the design of the system, that you are going to have sadness, anger, and fear. They're, they're unavoidable problems and have been since the time of Marcus Aurelius. Um, the question is, how can you build up the happiness stuff, the enthusiasm stuff, so that it drowns out the inevitable negativity? And um, I think that neuroscience is not the right route to seek the solution to that. I think you have to look firstly to the circumstances which are about child development and, and societies <laughs> encouraging people to do things because there's so many things to be enthusiastic about the world in the world the question is you know how to um, you know how to foster that as a family as a community as a you know as a society uh, and then also um, it's about individual paths so you know how do you get to choose whatever it is that will be motivating for you I mean, the one lesson from, say, the CBT line is you've got to at least try exposure. You know, uh, if you, as I said earlier, if you stay in your bedroom ruminating, nothing good is going to happen. You need to force yourself, find a way of coaxing yourself out into the world, which is where positive, meaningful, um, engaging things can happen. What, but what motivates me? You know, I'm a geeky scientist. There's all sorts of weird esoteric astronomical things and um, calculus things that, 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 that excite me that would be dull to other people. Um, you, you, we all need to find our own path. And the world is not short of exciting things. But I do think that um, nurturing the positive side of things seems to be an important path. And psychology in the last couple of decades, in the guise of positive psychology, Seligman's uh, field, you know, is, is all about building up the, the, the positive aspects, about spending more time savoring things, about um, nurturing the things that we know are important 
for us as human beings, like personal relationships, um, you know, uh, and not worrying too much about stuff that actually turns out on your deathbed not to be that important, like, you know, money. Um, so, you know, it's, um, I think there's, there's a whole journey there. I, I, neuroscience gives you the, the barest bones of that argument. I think most of it is, is about human beings as individuals, about how we raise human beings, about how we design ourselves as a society, you know, it's, but, but meaning, for me, um, meaning and increasing it is the, the most secure route to happiness. And I try to keep myself busy with all sorts of stuff, even if it makes me a bit too busy, just to make sure that I'm, um, that I'm always generating stuff I'm interested in, and, and rather than spending too much time worrying about the bad stuff, because the bad stuff is unfortunately biologically inevitable. So, okay. I don't know if that's a good answer, but it's the best I had. Firstly, my condolences. I, I, I've got three thoughts I'm going to offer you. I don't know anything about your cases, but I, for what it's worth. Let me see if I can remember what all of them are. The first of them, we've done some work over the years, it will be a different talk to give, um, on delusional beliefs after brain injury. Patients with medial frontal lesions often believe confabulatory delusional things. And um, the, off, the, the common solution in some therapeutic sessions, and unfortunately the common solution in some families is to try to argue them out of the delusional belief. You know, to say, you know, this is, my, I'm not an imposter, which is what the, the, the Capgar delusion is and so on. And uh, in, in my experience, that takes you absolutely nowhere. Um, you just end up undercutting the relationship between yourself the, the, within the family. Uh, and uh, some of the work that we've done over the years um, is about um, getting people to just find another topic to discuss rather than the, the because you cannot shift them in, in, in or at least with our, our client group, they, they were just very, very hard to move. So that would be my first thing. 
The second thought you talked about, um, he won't, uh, 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 he's not up for therapy. Um, I, if I, I don't know if I'm legally allowed to say this as a, as a clinical psychologist, but um, not all therapeutic work needs to be performed by people who are on the register of clinicians. You know, there are other relationships that we can have in our lives with people who are important. Heaven knows, you know, priests have probably been doing it forever. Aunts have probably been doing it forever. You know, it's about the ability to form a therapeutic alliance. And because meaning is the, the big ticket here, you know, I suspect that you would get more mileage out of um, his working with someone in a, to on a topic that he really cares about, something that's shared with him, especially if you trust that person. I, I'm not so sure if I give it to a member of the Flat Earth community, but, but someone that he, you know, something that he, that he's motivated by, I think would be a, a, a better way in. I've got two out of them. Sticky sadness. So, so I have nothing more to offer except what I said an hour ago, uh, which is that um, it is true that patients with executive impairment, if that's what, what, what your son has, have difficulty shifting, but it is possible to reappraise um, with an external, with some external mediation. So if someone that he cares about is able to offer him, you know, alternative ways of viewing at things, but he needs to care about them, you know, um, then that may be an interesting route in for, um, for, for reappraisal. I haven't seen any good um, studies with people who have brain injury at a large enough scale to know whether it works or not. Um, it's just that the, the single case stuff that we've reported suggest that it's possible to happen. I wouldn't hold out too much hope for generalization. So I don't know that if somebody does it for eight weeks, you know, then they magically know how to do it on their own, but I wouldn't rule it out either. You know, it might be that they can internalize some of those thoughts like stop, um, I'm having a bad moment here. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, in, in our clinic, we often use some very concrete solutions to those problems, like carrying a card around that says, you know, that the, the, the patient can pull out and says something, now's a good time to stop, go and go into the garden, have a, you know, have a look at the flowers, <laughs> think about something different in order to stop that difficult cycle of rumination. With our client group, um, we're always looking for easy to implement, concrete, simple strategies. They just seem to work better than you know, than, than too much abstraction. So I, I have no idea whether any of those will work, and um, but, but I wish you all the best on your on your journey. Thank you. There's time for one more. Of the dyad or whatever, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole field here, um, sometimes described as social neuroscience, uh, which sounds like it should mean the neuroscience of societies, but like all good science, they're starting with the smallest possible number, which is two, um, to see, you know, what happens in the minds of, uh, or, you know, of the other person who, who you are thinking about and about issues of empathy, for example. Um, 
I, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't want to choose a name, but if you try social neuroscience on Google Scholar, you will get more papers than you can read in an afternoon, I promise you. It's, uh, I think it's a, a, a really very important field. Um, and, um, you know, although psychology as a science needs to understand the single unit of, of, of individuals, plainly, we are a very social species. And the more that we can understand um, that relationship, uh, the better. And that includes, it starts to include the, the interesting possibilities of individual differences in our personality types. Um, and I could have said more about how the big five personality types might map onto basic emotion systems. That would have been another interesting chat. But, you know, how do we co-synchronize? You know, what happens if we just an N of two uh, with two people who are not the same and how best to manage that, um, that interesting relationship. It's, it's, of course, very interesting for psychotherapy, um, but it's even it's additionally interesting in any relationship in which there are two people who differ. And if you know the individual differences literature, then everybody differs. So, um, you know, the, every relationship with another person is an, are two minds trying to work out how best to read each other, where each of those minds may have different abilities at, to, to do that and also different agendas. So you can sort of see in computationally how, how it's hard enough trying to understand one mind. Two's going to be a big scale up. I don't know what happens when we start to talk about teams of people or, you know, communities of people. It, start, it, start, it starts looking more like sociology than, than psychology. And, and I, know my, uh, I know my geeky science limits. So. People have been trying interesting things, including putting two people in yeah. different scanners <laughs> and seeing what happens at the same time, which I think is a very interesting um, idea. Uh, I, I think it's a huge area of development. It, it's, I'm a bear of little brain and big words bother me or whatever the, the, the Winnie the Pooh phrase is. It, it's, that, that is a little beyond my, uh, my scale. If we've run out of time, can I thank you all again for coming here on a Sunday? I'm so glad that today wasn't the hottest day of the year because I lived... <laughs> I lived through it yesterday and it was no fun. So, but thank you so much. <laughs>